לשידור ישיר ממחנה רמה בברקשיירס. כל רמה, מאה ושתיים שלוש, Shalom. This is Parsha Talk. Welcome. I'm Rabbi Elliot Malamed in New Jersey. And joining me, as always, good friends, Rabbi Barry Chesler in Long Island, Rabbi Jeremy Komolowski in New York City. We're all suffering in this heat, the sweltering heat, remembering our time at Camp Ramah when we could at least look at the lake, maybe swim in it. And this, of course, is a very special week. because of Tisha B'Av, we'll talk about that in a moment. But in the meantime, we are opening up the fifth book of the Chumash, Sefer Dvarim. Let's talk about Sefer Dvarim and then the Parsha. Let's talk about this book. What is this book? Where is this book situated? What's going on in this book? Barry, I'll start with you. So, last week we concluded the so-called Tetratoch, the first four books of the Torah. And today we open up, the scene is... Israel, roughly two million strong, is on the east side of the Jordan River. And Moses is going to talk, not the people to death, but tell his own death. He's going to give several major addresses and recapitulate everything that's happened in the last 40 years of significance, although, as Ramban notes, he leaves quite a lot out. Um, and then he's going to introduce some new things. But it's this great scene. You can imagine Moses... forbidden to enter the land of Israel. I assume he has his back to the land while he addresses the people. And then at the end of the book, he's going to be able to climb the mountain and look towards the land for that last great glimpse of something that he can't have. But there's something about the book that for hundreds and hundreds of years has struck people as being very different and very special. It was a major part of the puzzle of A biblical criticism in the 18th and 19th century because the tone and the, the language is so different. And um, I, it's a hard book not to love. It's a hard book not to love, and I really appreciate the, the staging there. I mean, it's very theatrical. It's a, it's, a, it's a huge monologue, or several of them. And I think you're quite right to, 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 to imagine Moshe with his back to the land and, and looking at the people, and the people are looking at the land. They're almost like sitting in an amphitheater. Jeremy, what do you make of the book? So it's, I, I agree, it's a hard book not to love. It's an easy book to be carried away on, and it's so unique. It's amazing, as, as Barry referenced, you know, when, when uh, academic people started analyzing where these texts may have come from, it's, it's just so perfectly obvious to you that it, didn't, it doesn't read like, it doesn't sound like its vocabulary is different. And one of the things that, you know, I, I would say about myself in general, that I, I kind of resonate a little bit more to Chazal, to rabbinic uh, material, than to the biblical material itself. And, and I think one reason is that um, the rabbis, like me, we've inherited a canon, and we have to make sense of it, and we have to apply it in, under different circumstances. And at the very first, you know, beginning of the Torah, beginning of the book of Zbarim here, it says, 
Ho'il Moshe Be'eret HaTorah Hazot, Moses began to explain the Torah that they had, that they had inherited. And that, that just makes me feel, that just puts the hair on the back of my neck to stand up. So this is, now it's not about Abraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, an ancient. No, it's about people trying to make sense and explain and clarify uh, a tradition that they've inherited, which is not always so obvious. So I think, these are the first Zionists. They're going to go to the land and they have to make it work. It's in a way that we can locate ourselves in this book because, precisely because this book is based on the previous four and therefore it is the, it is the proto-rabbinic book or it is the, the, the book of explication. Um, I also you, like to think that it's, it's, it's the... Go ahead. You know it never says in, in this book, yeah. like that line that, that is so decisive in the other... Thing. God says, Moses, here's what you should do. Now, there's a few, by the bear Adonai, a lies, as sure. Moses is relating the first person. But when Moses gives all of the laws in Shoftim and, and Kitetse um, uh, and Re'eh, it's not by the bear Adonai, Moshe Lemor. And like me, uh, Moshe in those moments doesn't really um, uh, just transmit the message from God. He's got to develop the message. So, so this book is a, I'm going to say it, it's, it's a, a book of theology. It's, a, it's the most theological book of all of the books of the Torah. And we could describe Rashid. And more, also, Elliot, it's worth adding, not only is it the most theological, but it's a theology that resonates most with us. Indeed, indeed. And so, so let's just shift for a second and, and say that the book is, is based on, on, on a very deep irony. <laughs> And the rabbis pick up on this. Batchila Amar Moshe Lo Ishtvarim Anochim. I'm not a man of words. Ve'elahadvarim Asher Diber Moshe. And so this is the whole book of words. So the irony is that we've arrived at the end of 40 years, the end of the, the career. The guy can't stop talking. <laughs> and, and so what's curious, though, about that phrase with Moses being a man of a few words is that the only evidence is that expression. Okay. Right? right? He's never had in the entire Torah any difficulty talking when he had to talk. Right? He's back. Well, he was so repeating, I, and there were, there were times that, that he turned to Aaron to, to, to have, you know, the, the words spoken. Uh, but again, I, you know, this is, this is an ironic phrase. I, it just, you know, w- we are involved in speaking on a regular basis, and, and I, I can't help but imagine, you know, what it would have been like to be in the audience there and to, to hear. I, I'm estimating it's a four-hour speech. Who can sit through that? You know? I'm going to take a slightly different than ironic. I think... You know, there's a way in which you're talking about that, that bit of Moshe from, from the, the guy at the burning bush who said, I really can't do this. I can't speak to the guy who, who gives this great oration uh, as, as just a development of, a, of an undeveloped capacity, right? Uh, so in, in addition, you know, it could, it could, be, it could be ironic. And as, as Barry was sort of suggesting, you know, give the lie to his, his you know, profession that he's not a, not a good speaker. But maybe actually... It's an expression of the development of his leadership from um, the guy whose best work is with the magic wand of the staff, who does plagues, who makes miracles happen, who, you know, um, 
is, is a kind of a wonder worker, to the person who becomes Moshe Rabbeinu, who, whose principal um, method of leadership is that, that intellectual discourse. I mean, that's, that's Deuteronomy at its best. It's the book that says, remember, teach, speak. And so he really does become, from, from the guy who's, whose best move was with the Nile, to the guy whose best move is with the Torah. So it's, a, it's an invitation really to, to watch, observe, analyze, and uh, remark on the incredible growth of this incredible person. He is, of course, the central character in this book, um, and he is the one who is speaking. And in every sentence, practically, there is the sense that, look where he's come from. Look, look, at, look at this journey. This journey is not a geographical journey, it's a spiritual journey. Exactly. Indeed. So, so let's talk about the, the people that he is speaking to. And, and here, I think this is a very rich uh, subject for, for all of us. The people that are in front of him are not the people who left Egypt. Barry, go ahead with this one. So I think we sometimes forget this, that um, the people that left Egypt who were over 20, have all died. There are three left. There's Moses who's about to die, Kalev and Yehoshua, and everyone else who is over 20 has passed away in the wilderness. And what remains now are the people that were born in the wilderness and those people who were kids at the Exodus. And in a sense, Moses is rehearsing for them their history which they do not have not experienced firsthand. And it gives us, I think, pause for thought because I think we often think of the people of the Torah being so intimately involved in God and in Judaism, as it were, but it's not their firsthand experience. You know, it's a very big difference for the generation that was at Mount Sinai to say, be reminded, God spoke to you at Mount Sinai, and then to hear some old guy say, your parents heard God speak at Mount Sinai. I think this is, this is such an accessible uh, theme for us, uh, certainly because you know, we, we understand and we can relate to the idea that the experience of our children in the world is different from ours, as our experience in the world was different from our own parents. And, Jeremy, I want you to reflect on, on some of this and, and, and think about, you know, what it means to, to, to navigate this, this generational chasm here. It's, it's a really tremendous challenge. And th those of us who live in America uh, in the second half of the 20th and the, well, really all the 20th century and then into the 21st century is very present. Um, you know, my grandparents, all four of my grandparents were born in the, in the United States. And all, you know, all, all of eight of their parents were European immigrants. And it's very hard to, to imagine, um, you know, even though uh, my, my grandparents were all, you know, connected Jews or whatever, I, I can only imagine the enormous unbridgeable gaps between the experiences that they had and the ones that their parents had. And then my parents or you know, uh, uh, Americans in a, in a different generation, not, not quite baby boomers. They were born in the early 40s. Um, and so then I'm, I'm a next generation and my kids are, are uh, you know, millennials or whatever they are. Um, 
and the the different sets of experiences and the, and the different things that people um, value and the ways they have of thinking can be can be hard to really connect across. And I know that we think about this. I mean, I think about this in terms of of Judaism. Are the things that I find moving necessarily the things that my parents or my children will find moving? Will my children, you know, behave in the same ways? Will they care about the same things? And I, and I think it's evident in this passage as well in the ways that Barry was saying that the um, that the that the people who are desert born or desert grown up have a different relationship to Mount Sinai and to the Exodus than than their parents who are they just inheritors and 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 you know I think that for myself I um, feel less investment that my kids behave exactly as I do uh, in Jewish terms than um, than I perhaps used to feel uh, but I, I really want my kids to care about the things that I care about. I really want my kids to feel, I think they do, uh, strongly connected as Jews, even if they're going to have to negotiate that and make that in their lives in a way that will sometimes feel foreign to me. You know, the trick, the trick is, like, this is, this is a thing, I think it's called Themistius's paradox. Can you change every board in a ship and still have it be the same ship, right? And the, and the answer is, yeah, but not all at once, right? If you change one board one week and one board the next week and one board the and a whole year later, every board in the ship is different, but there's continuity, and and that's what I think for myself as I wonder about and worry about as a Jew. I, I hope that the boards of the ship get changed one by one and not all at once, so the ship is the same ship over time organically. But the, the reality that you describe really is a, is a reality that that can be extended to all of Jewish history. Look, I mean, we, anyone who reads a page of Talmud can see just, you know, without even a magnifying glass, that, that the way the Amoraim looked at the, the, the Mishnah was different from the way the Tanaim looked, were, were receiving this. And that they themselves are grappling with different circumstances, different understandings, different language, and, and a different approach to the law altogether. And even the page of Talmud is constructed in such a way to, to demonstrate that. You have on the page, you know, the text, and all the generations afterwards who are, are simply arguing with each other. Or the, the, the beauty of that is, the beauty of the example that you just gave, is that there are differences within a single conversation. And as a Jew, what I want to feel is that I can be participant in a single conversation from my vantage point. Right. Barry. Yeah, I was going to say that when we look at the page of the Talmud, it looks like everyone on the page is actually talking to each other. But they're not. They're having their own conversation. It's connected, but they have their own agenda. So if we would read back Rashi, you know, if he would meet Abaye, let's say, that Abaye would have any idea what, what he was talking about. So I, 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 um, because, you know, I, I think that's excessive. I think that on one level, if you think that they're talking to each other, you're, you're like deluded because they live a thousand years apart. But on another level, if you don't feel like they're talking to each other and part of the same conversation, as a Jew, you know, as a, as a 21st century uh, educated person, you understand that things emerge from different times and places, and so they are different, and they have different concerns, different methods of thinking, different things that they knew about or experienced, and that's that's just a fact. 
And at the same time, on a different level, you want to feel that there's a, a kind of simultaneity to the conversation. So that's the that's the romantic well, so, part. Right. That's I want, our I want structure. To, yeah. The, I want to we say impose it, a simultaneity. The, what I want to say is that is that is that no matter what, and the, no matter all the differences, I could still sit down with my children, and I could still sit down with my parents, grandparents, all the way back with the text. The text is the is the one continuity. The explications, the interpretations, and how we interact—that's different. And I would even go so far as to say that that, yeah, you bet. Moshe, Moshe is speaking to me. I, I mean, it's not a terribly great leap of the imagination to 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 hear the words Shema Yisrael and think that yeah, that's that's speaking to you. That's that's so, that's Moshe's. That's the line about Ho'il Moshe Be'er et Torah that Moses began to explain the Torah. The, the Midrash on that says he translated it into all 70 languages of the world. Mm-hmm. And on one level, that is about a kind of a horizontal thing that the other nations, not just Israel, had some access to, to God's voice. And that's, that's a stirring Midrash in its own right. But what if, we, what if we turn that to a temporal drash and not a horizontal one, not, not all 70 languages that were spoken, uh, you know, 3,500 years ago, but all the multiple languages through history um, so that it was audible and, and accessible to people who lived, you know, in, in Middle Ages, in, 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 uh, in, in the ancient world, the Middle Ages, the early modern world, our world, and worlds that we can't even imagine in the future. Right. They're speaking, I think about even the, in the course of our lifetimes, the way that English has changed and, and that we probably would not be able to understand a conversation 30 years ago with all of, you know, who knew what a, a hard drive was, who knew what, what you know, uh, websites, I mean, we, we had no idea, we had no nomenclature for any of the things that are part of our daily lives, you know. I keep joking about the fact that, you know, a certain important relative of my life thinks that the app store is in the mall, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Mom, sorry. <laughs> you know, like... But why not? Why wouldn't the app store be in the mall? Well, just think about think about. Well, first of all, what's a mall? But <laughs> but then uh, you know, I was I think about use the, the use of word uh, uh, access as a verb. I access this. What, yeah. what, where does that come from? Or to download any of these things? Right. There's a whole vocabulary. Zoom. Zoom is going to be. Zoom is uh, yeah. Zoom is going to be a verb in the future. So back to this generational thing. So, so the one continuity is Torah. I think a part of the joy of, of, of this is that, yes, we, we talk to these people. Hillel talks to, to us. Akiva talks to us. They're, they're present for us. We, we, we invite them all to be with us when we pray and when we daven and when we study. I mean, you can't get much more clear than this than at the sukkah. You're, they're, they're there. They're not ghosts, but they're they're there. There's they're they well the Uspizin are from the Bible, not from the rabbis. That's right. Well, you know, Do you we, have a set of rabbinic Uspizin? I, I used to give a sermon every Sukkot, who would I invite to my uh sukkah? And you know, typically I, I, I kept saying like the show oh, president. Hillel Hillel is a he's the, like the nicest guy, I think. Right? But I like Shum, you know, that kind of thing. Okay. So, so um, we have uh, 
an important week in the calendar this week. And it's, uh, this Shabbat is called Shabbat Chazon. Chazon because of the first words of the, uh, the Haftarah. Chazon Yishayahu ben Amotz, the vision of Yishayahu. Of course, it's the Shabbat. We'll be observing that on Wednesday night. Um, an important day for all of us uh, on, on many, many levels. Um, I want to, Jeremy, I want you to reflect a little bit on the Haftarah and it, what it captivates in your imagination and what, what, what do you hear? I mean, if Isaiah was here, what would you, what would you want him to explain to you? <laughs> Isaiah is just you know, such, such a, of, of course, there's not one single individual in historical terms of Isaiah, but uh, because the first 39 chapters of the book are set in the 8th century BC and then the the final 26 chapters are set in the in the 6th century BCE, but uh, there's a continuity here too of a sort of style of expression and the just the, mo- the most amazing poet. Um, and he, he's the prophet uh, after Moses, perhaps, you know, the most eloquent and most vivid prophet. And one of the things that I love about the, the prophetic tradition and this moment is, you know, Isaiah combines just scorching criticism of the way Israel has gone wrong. He gives it to them a full dose of their terrible mistakes and holds out a vision of hope that they can turn it back around, right? He calls them, he calls them in this haftarah, hoi goi choteh, oh, you sinful people, kitsine stom, you are, you are like the, the chieftains of Sodom and Amorah. Uh, your city you had been a faithful city. It used to be the home of justice. And now, it's filled with murderers. The pain that he feels at looking at what Jerusalem had become. And, and we need to hear this, meth- this message. Um, I think that every society needs to hear from people it respects and from people that it admires hard truths. And one might say that uh, in, in America today, we, we don't really excel. We, we excel at politicians telling people what they want to hear. But actually, prophets, you know, they're, they're pretty good at telling people what they don't want to hear. And he gives it to them. And so you get on Tisha B'Av, uh, or as in the run-up to Tisha B'Av, in this Haftarah, which will always fall the Shabbat immediately preceding, um, you want to hear that the things that are wrong with the world are not because those bad people over there have done some bad things and we got to get rid of the bad people. You got to look inside yeah. and ask yourself, how is it that I have contributed to what's screwed up about the world? And can I fix it? Yes, I can. And he, he brings you uh, among, uh, among his messages um, a line that, that has, this part of the Amidah, uh, I will restore your judges uh, as they once were, and your counselors as time of old, which was slight, slightly modified in the Amidah. And every time you say this in your weekday Amidah, you should say to yourself, um, I look forward to a more just world, and I take responsibility for the stuff that I, that I have screwed up. Which, so to, to me, this, this message really brings Tisha B'Av, uh, you know, in, into my heart. Harry, you have any reflections on on Yeshaya or or Dishabav altogether? Let's. Um, so, what what hits home to me about Isaiah in this haftarah is when 
he says that God does not want the sacrifices. Yeah. And he wants them to, the people are supposed to purify themselves and wash away their sin. And what I found so forceful is Jeremy mentioned murder in Hebrew, retzach, and the solution is to cleanse oneself of the sin by lirchotz. So it's just a slight change in the language and the letters of the word that we could cleanse away, cleanse our sins. And I find that very striking because uh, what I like to think about is that when we think of the prophets, we think of these great figures who are dressing down the people and the people say, oh, we were fools. This is what we have to do. But of course, in their lifetime, no one said that. They said, oh, there's that crazy guy again. <laughs> and, you know, the society that the prophets describe is not all that different than the society that we live in today. You know, we live in a bountiful society in large measure, despite even with COVID and all the pressures that it has created on stunningly large numbers of people. This is a, a wealthy country and it has a lot of good in it. Now, one of the articles I read recently suggested that there really isn't anything economically wrong with a $3 trillion package to help America at this time. And that's mind blowing. Yeah. Um, I, I want to share, share something with, you know, these weeks bring up a lot of memories for us um, from camp and, and um, in thinking about the, the Haftarah in particular, you know, the first verse I, I can recall, you know, as a camper and as a Slater, as a staff growing up in Canada with Rabbi Israel Silverman, you know, he had a very peculiar way of saying, Shibu Shamayim Vaziliares, Banim Gidalti Viramamti Vehem Pashuvi. And you almost heard his voice crack with Vehem Pashuvi, which means, I raised my children, I raised the children, Vehem Pashuvi. And, and again, that goes back to our conversation about generations, which is there is something, there's a default setting from parents to children. The, the parents are always going to see that the children somehow don't don't live up to their expectations. I mean, that's one default setting. Sometimes the children can surpass us. But here, I, you know, Isaiah is seeing in the, in the voice of God, I raised children, look, look what they did to me. Look what they did to me. You people, you. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, like the, the, uh, there's a creative betrayal yeah. where your kids sort of, you know, undermine your your some of your positions but that's because they're carrying forward some of the instincts and some of the things that you care about like my kids you know god forbid i certainly don't think of myself as a racist um i, I don't don't you know express or enact any racial animus in any way but my kids are really focused on issues of racism in this country and and there's a if if they think that i'm a like a middle-aged, you know, has-been, which I kind of am a middle-aged has-been, uh, that's, a, that's, a, that's a creative betrayal. The ham pashubi is like, oh, they just like left me behind. They don't even care about me. That's totally. So, so let's, let's think about uh, Tisha B'Av for, for a couple of minutes too. Not only, you know, because we, we, we started this uh, conversation when we were back at camp. So camp, it, you know, became a really important place for Tisha B'Av. 
and the memories, of course, that we all have of Tisha B'Av, you know, we, we, we all think we couldn't, we, it's very difficult to do Tisha B'Av without, without the structure of camp. But um, what are you going to be thinking about uh, this, this, this coming week? What are you going to be thinking about on Tisha B'Av? Uh, what do you want people listening to, to think about, Barry? Or? Well, I think that this year is a heightened awareness of dislocation in American society. And in fact, all over the world, even though we're going out, I'm struck by people wearing masks in public. Who would have imagined that four months ago? Yeah. That all of a sudden, everyone you, almost everyone you see has a mask on if they're on the street or one around their neck if they think that they're safely away from someone. And you know, one of the things that COVID has done is it's really created dislocation. Even the places that we know, and most of us, or many of us, I suspect, have spent far more time at home than we ever have before. And home is not necessarily the place where you want to spend so much time. What <laughs> makes it home is the refuge piece of it, not the everyday part of it. And to me, in part, that's symbolized by the temple that was destroyed you know the again you know we were talking about isaiah isaiah was a prophet of jerusalem who for the rabbis had knowledge of the temple and um unlike yechesco who was sort of a, a a rube you know he was in babylonia and um had a very different um access access to god and you know, if we were living in the Galileo, which we might have had we've been living in temple times, I don't know how much the temple would have affected our lives on a day-to-day -day basis until that day when it was destroyed and we realized we can't get it back. That's fascinating. And I think that part carries through. So I suspect I'm with a number of colleagues that are not praying fervently for the third temple. Uh, you know, if it happens, I'm not going to say no. But on the other hand, it's not the prayer that I need to be or want to be answered in this life. I think more to the point is, you know, what was suggested by Jeremy, we want more justice in the world, um, not necessarily a temple. But there is a place to remember that we once had a temple and what that temple represented and how that continues to resonate and reverberate in their lives today, 2,000 years later. Jeremy, you want to reflect? You want to... Uh, I, I think about, uh, each year I think about the rabbinic lore that says the temple is destroyed because of sinat chinam, because, because of pointless hating each other. And as, as Rav Cook responded in the early 20th century, we were destroyed by sinat chinam. We can only rebuild ourselves by ahavat chinam. We can only rebuild ourselves by loving freely, I, I, I'll translate, if sinat chinam is pointless hatred, then ahavat chinam is not pointless love, but it's just, I, I like to say, it's love you don't have to earn. You just look at another person and you value and you, you think that they are precious by virtue of the fact that they exist and that you wish the best for them. And I'm thinking about in this, in the United States, among Am Yisrael, among um, the, the 
the two the two groupings of people that I'm part of as my American citizenship and my my spiritual citizenship and the Jewish people we got much 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 too much hatred of each other and suspicion of each other and ungenerosity towards each other so the truth is that there are people in the United States I don't understand but I got to try to understand the people who take political positions that I think are cracked but I got to try to understand and and care about them with generosity and hopefully a little bit of ahavat chinam will repair a little bit of the of the brokenness of this world it's interesting i mean the the moods of the day move from korban to this kind of gula to, to a nechama comfort the comfort that is reflected in in a hope of a better future a hope of the ability to restore and and without the ingredients that you mentioned uh, we would not be able to restore both uh Klal Yisrael, without its center, and to a certain extent, I think a broken nation. This is uh, where we're, we're, I think, fortunate to reflect on these themes in the context of uh, this day when when it, they really relate to so much reality that that is that is being experienced, the brokenness and the the possibility for wholeness. Well, we've come to the end of our time together, starting a new book, starting a new time going into a, you know, a very somber and, and challenging week, but also a week that will bring some nechama. We look forward to it. But before that, we have Shabbat Shalom. So on behalf of Rabbi Barry Chester, Rabbi Jeremy Kalmanowski, I'm Elliot Malamed. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. We'll see you guys all next week.